This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through the Gospel of John. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. Where are all your accusers? Where are the ones who have condemned you? Has no one condemned you? She says, no one, sir. They've all left. All her accusers and condemners have left now. They've peeled away, one by one, older ones first. It's now this one-on-one conversation between Jesus and this woman. Who's here to condemn you? She says, no one. He says, then neither do I condemn you. Now, if he had stopped there, he might be open to the accusation. Are you being a little soft on sin here, Jesus? But he adds, go now and leave your life of sin. Today, Pastor Gary brings you to a message of forgiveness. It's an encounter that Jesus had with a woman caught in sin. There was no way for her to deny it, and the religious leaders wanted her punished by Jesus. Yet, he chose to forgive her instead. Jesus offered mercy where punishment was called for. And more than that, he reminded her that there was a new life to be had, a life that didn't include her prior actions. And today, Jesus is offering this to you, too. You can begin a brand new life right now. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of John, chapter 7, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. That's what Islam teaches, that Jesus was a great prophet. That he was inferior to Muhammad, by the way, but that he was just a great prophet, certainly not the son of God. So you have one camp even today who's teaching that. You have another group of people, just like what, what the others say, well, he is the Christ, he's the Messiah. I believe he's the Messiah. You believe them as he's the Messiah. There's many people who believe that he's Messiah. Not everybody, of course. And still others are confused. And in the crowd there, they're like, well, you know, how could the Christ come from Galilee? Now, Galilee is a region, like we think of a county, like Loudoun County. And so Jesus was from Nazareth. He was a Nazarene. He was from Nazareth. Nazareth is in the province of Galilee. But he wasn't, he wasn't born there. So they don't, they, they know something about Jesus, but they don't know everything about him. It's like, well, you know, he's from Nazareth, right? So he's a Galilean. So he can't be the Christ because, and they say this accurately, does not the scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David is from? Yeah, David was born in Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem is a town within a different province, a different county. Bethlehem is in the province of Judea. And so they're, they're like, well, I thought the Christ was supposed to be from Bethlehem. So they don't know that he was born in Bethlehem. Otherwise, they would realize that he actually is a fulfillment of the prophecy of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. And so, you know, they're drawing these confusing conclusions about Jesus because they just don't know everything. How true is it today that some people draw erroneous conclusions about the identity of Jesus because they just don't know their facts? You have a lot of people talking about Jesus, all kinds of Jesus, all right? You have the Mormons who teach that Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer. You have Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus is the archangel Michael. It's right on their website. You can go to the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Watchtower organization. You can see that Jesus is 
the Archangel Michael. There's people who are confused about the identity of Jesus. Jesus never said he was the Archangel Michael, and he certainly isn't the spirit brother of Lucifer. He's the son of God. He is God in flesh who came, condescended from heaven, comes to earth, takes on flesh, dies for our sins. He's the one and only. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. We can't all be right, folks. Okay? So you have to decide whether various world religions and various concepts and definitions about who Jesus is is right or wrong. You have to know what Jesus says that he is. And then get on the side of truth which is the side of Jesus. And so people are confused in the crowd here. Now, you read on with me. It says, verse 45, Finally the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, Why didn't you bring him in? Because the, the religious leaders just wanted to arrest him. They wanted, they're still looking for some way to just you know, do away with Jesus. So they, they, send, they send the temple guards out. Maybe you guys can... You know, so there's a hit on Jesus' life. You know, the Pharisees are basically the mafia. Do you know what I'm saying to you? Verse, verse 46, no one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. We didn't bring him back because this guy, he's kind of different from anybody else we, we've ever encountered. And they say, you mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Has any of the rulers or of the Pharisees, now listen to what they say. Has any of the rulers, okay, the big shots, or the Pharisees, the really religious guys, believed in him? No. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Listen to the pride in all of that. It's like, you know, does any, they ask the temple guards, does anybody who is anybody in this town believe in Jesus? Answer, no. Only the sorry mob here, they don't know any better. So they're just, you know, these miserable bunch of uneducated people who, you know, are turning to him like some emotional crutch, but we're better than that. And so that's their answer there. No. Well, Nicodemus, verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. There's just such confusion here. He's not from Galilee. He's from Judea. He was born in Bethlehem. Nicodemus asked this question. Remember, he's the guy back in John chapter 3 who went to Jesus at night, Nick at night. And, um, and, and, he, and he asked, you know, you know, teacher, there's something different about you, and there's that whole dialogue about what, what does it mean to be born again, John chapter 3. So Nicodemus is really secretly a follower. He's going to appear on the scene again when Jesus is crucified. Nicodemus will go with Joseph of Arimathea, another one from the Jewish Sanhedrin, and they will go and get the body of Jesus and bury it. So Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, I think we'll see him in heaven. I think that they're believers. It speaks of Joseph of Arimathea particularly being a disciple of Jesus, though secretly, it says, for fear of the Jews. But Nicodemus poses this question. He's trying to give some reason here. Cooler heads will prevail. He's like, you know, what are we doing here? We're rushing to judgment. Shouldn't we at least investigate this? And their answer is, you know what? You have your information wrong on this guy because they think he's from Galilee. He's, he's really from Judea originally. Into chapter 8, I want to share, you know, we've got still... A good bit of time here, and, and so I want to definitely at least get through this next story. And before we talk about this next story here from uh, John 8, verse 1 through verse 11, some of your Bibles have this little, um, 
inserted comment here between the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8, and mine reads this. It says, the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7.53 through 8.11. If you have a King James Bible, you don't see that. It just reads on, and it should. I'm not going to bore you with the details, but I just want to basically quickly address it. Here's why that little note is in, is in some of your Bibles. There's a disagreement between, it boils down to this, there's a disagreement between antiquity and quantity. By that I mean that there are some ancient manuscripts. First of all, we don't have any of the original manuscripts, okay? We don't have Paul's original signed letters to the Ephesians. You know, we don't have John's original signed autograph. Can you imagine what that would be worth? But we have copies of copies. And the copies were carefully transcribed because your ancient languages had a numeric value to each letter. And the ancient scribes, after they copied, would add up the number. Each letter had a numeric value. They would add up the math. And if the math did not equate to the original, they would destroy the entire scroll and start over. So there was a very meticulous way to transcribe to make sure that there were no errors because the math was used as well as, as the eye to calculate and to, to transcribe everything. The NIV, which is what I'm reading from, okay, the NIV translation was uh, derived from three ancient texts that were uh, that were from around the fourth century, including the, something. And again, this is kind of boring for many of you, but the Codex Vaticanus and the Codex Sinaiticus. That's the NIV um, opts for the older manuscripts from the fourth century. The King James Bible is really from six ancient manuscripts plus actually about 5,000 other portions from the 10th century, not as old as what the NIV goes back to, to uh, look and observe. And in some of the ancient texts, this next story is not in it. In the 10th century text, this story is. So then it's a question of antiquity or quantity because you have more, more manuscripts that are, that are more recent that have it. You have fewer manuscripts that are older that don't. But then there are all other kinds of statistics, like about 450 Greek manuscripts do have this section. So there's all kinds of debates. Look, at the end of the day, this doesn't change anything about the gospel message, about anything related to uh, salvation. And this story is very accurate in its reflection of the character of Jesus. I think it belongs here. I think it's necessary for it to be inserted but that's why that little uh, footnote is there, and I just wanted to mention it. It's really not um, something to stumble over, okay? But, but here we go. Um, after the end of chapter 7, actually verse 53 says, And then each went to his own home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And verse 2 says, At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, so now he's back in Jerusalem, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. 
And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. This is one of the most, I think, tender and vivid illustrations of the topic of grace in all the Bible. And one of the other beauties about this story, I think, and I think John captures it more than the other gospel writers do, and that is the tender way that Jesus dealt with and ministered to women in particular. Remember from John chapter 4, the story of the woman at the well. She's been married five times, been through multiple divorces. The guy she's living with now, the sixth relationship she's on, she was not married to. And Jesus ministers to her. There's this very gracious exchange there with her. Now we have another scene here in John chapter 8 of a woman here who was brought before Jesus. She is caught in adultery. It tells us here, please, you know, look, smell the plot right up front because it tells us in verse 6, this is staged. Because some of the Pharisees and religious leaders, it tells us, were trying to trap Jesus. This whole thing. This is not just suddenly, you know, they walk past, you know, a door that was happened to be open and, and you know, they're just peeping toms and they happen to notice, oh, they're committing adultery and yank the woman out. Oh, Jesus, you happen to be here. Hey, what do you say? Settle the score for us. Should we stone this woman? Because the law of Moses said anybody caught adultery should be stoned. Don't buy that for a minute. This whole thing is staged. The fact of the matter is, one reason we know this for sure is, who's missing in this story, ladies? The guy, okay? Takes two to tango, right? Where's the guy? Don't think just because it is true that this is predominantly, you know, a male culture at this time, that that's the reason why the guy wasn't hauled out with her, because the very Mosaic law that these guys are quoting required the guy to be stoned too. In Deuteronomy 22.22, I'll read it before you can turn there. This is what it says. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. Now, aren't you glad you're living under grace today? Because adultery was a capital offense under the Old Testament. That if a man and a woman committed adultery, they were hauled before the elders of the city and they were stoned to death. They were stoned to death. But the man was to be included. The fact that the man is not here, it's evidence that he's in cahoots. This is collusion right here. This guy's probably in on the whole thing. This is entrapment. The woman has been entrapped in adultery. I'm not saying that every adultery is entrapment, okay? It does take two to tango. But in this particular case, you can smell a rat. These leaders are bringing this woman out before Jesus. There's no man involved. And they say to Jesus, you know, what should we do? The Mosaic law, the law says that we should stone her. What do you say here? Can you imagine how absolutely humiliating and embarrassing and mortifying it is for this woman? She has been hauled out there. She's probably barely clothed. Maybe she's got the bed linens wrapped around her, and she's, they stand her 
in front of Jesus, in front of this whole group, it says. There's a whole group of people here. He's in the temple court area, probably in the court of the Gentiles, because the floor of the court of the Gentiles was dirt. Now, this woman here is standing in front of Jesus. It just goes to show you the the great um, lengths that they've gone to, they've sunk to, to try to entrap Jesus, to try to discredit Jesus. They're going to do it at the expense of this woman. They're going to humiliate this woman in an effort to trap Jesus. I mean, how, how low can you go? Well, this, this is the scene here. Now, notice here, they say to him in verse 5, what do you say? You know, the, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as, as, as a question to trap him. Jesus here at this moment, he understands this. We get it because we have the bird's eye view of the story. If Jesus says, let her go, then he's going to be technically defying the law of Moses. Because the law of Moses does say both are to be stoned. If he says kill her, then everybody in the crowd who knows that he's a friend of sinners is going to be disheartened by his answer. So here he is, you know, and I... If you've ever taught Sunday school, you, you know this moment, okay? Especially, you know, I'm not ca- talking kids Sunday school because they don't know enough to ask the deeper theological questions and good for them because then when they get older, then you have adult Sunday school classes. So here you are teaching a Sunday school class and somebody stands up and says, excuse me, excuse me, uh, are you five-point Calvinist or are you five-point Arminian? Is that what Cornerstone is? Are you five-point Calvinist or are you five-point Arminian? Because if you're five-point Calvinist, I'm leaving the church. If you're five-point Calvinist, my wife is leaving the church. What do you say? Like, ah, uh, let me just kind of write in the dirt right now so I can kill time while I pray. Now, I don't know if that's what Jesus was doing. Was he killing time while he could pray? Or was he actually doing something more than that? There's this speculation. What is he doing? What is he writing in the dirt? Some say he's writing the Ten Commandments. You've heard that one? I've heard that one. That could be a possibility. You know, adultery is commandment number seven. So maybe as he's writing the commandments, he's getting through, you know, six of them before he gets to thou shalt not commit adultery. And maybe by that point, as everybody's seeing the commandments written in the dirt, they start peeling off one by one. By the way, notice the older guys first. Because the older, the longer you've lived, the, the more you're aware of a sinful life. Amen. All the older people? Amen. All right, they're just checking. It'll catch up with you eventually. You know, when people are younger, they don't really realize the magnitude of their own sinful condition. The older you get, the more sin you commit, the more you're aware of it, okay? The older ones start to peel off one by one. Maybe he was writing the Ten Commandments, we don't know. Some people also say this, that he's writing their names in the dirt. He's like, okay, I know your sin. And so he's writing John's name. I know your sin. And then there's Andrew's name. And I, you know, you know. And then maybe as people see their names in the dirt, they're like, oh man, my name is Mud. You know. And so they're, and so they, they get, they get that sense of like they're convicted too. Who knows? I will tell you this though. I think the reason he's doing this, no matter what he wrote, there are only two times in the Bible where it says that the finger of God wrote something. This scene right here. And Exodus chapter 31, verse 18, where it tells us the Ten Commandments were written by the finger of God. So was this Jesus' way of letting them know, I am God? Maybe he was writing the Ten Commandments to make that parallel between Exodus 31. 
But no matter what he writes here, the wisdom that comes from his mouth is just amazing once again, where he says to them, if any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. He's like, all right, you you have accused her of adultery, adultery she's committed. If you haven't committed any sin, why don't you go ahead and be the first one to chuck a stone at her? And it says to us at verse 9, at this, and the King James inserts here, being convicted by their own conscience, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, and the woman was still standing there. Now, what you see, this is a very tender moment right here. What does he say to her? There are some who read this passage and say Jesus is being soft on sin. In fact, it is the reason why some ancient manuscripts, it is believed, omitted it because somebody decided, this looks a little soft on sin. We're just not even going to record it. Was Jesus being soft on sin here? Because what he says to her is, where are all your accusers? Where are the ones who have condemned you? Has no one condemned you? She says, no one, sir. They, they've all left. All her accusers and condemners have left now. They've peeled away, one by one, older ones first. It's now this one-on-one conversation between Jesus and this woman. Who's here to condemn you? She says, no one. He says, then neither do I condemn you. Now, if he had stopped there, he might be open to the accusation. Are you being a little soft on sin here, Jesus? But he adds, go now and leave your life of sin. We need to read this story not that Jesus was weak on sin. He was strong on grace. What was it that the people had done to this woman? This is where we get the English word. They had disgraced her. They had disgraced her. Jesus graced her. He graced her. He expressed grace. That's what Jesus does. That's the ministry of Jesus. People may disgrace you, but Jesus graces you. You sift through all the epistles of Paul. I just want you to look at the last verse of each of his epistles. Just go 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Romans. Look at the way that he ends his epistles almost every single time. Paul ends his epistle. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Because he wants to end his letter on the same tone that Jesus was all about in his ministry. I've come to grace you. We beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. This woman's humiliation was punishment enough. And Jesus, looking into her heart and soul, knew she was already sorry for her sin. What she needed here was not someone else to disgrace her. What she needed was someone to grace her, and that's what Jesus did. And aren't you thankful that that's what Jesus is about in your life and mine? Amen. We're so glad you joined us for this edition of Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Pastor Gary's been going through the book of John. If you missed any part of this message, you can hear it again on our website, 
cornerstoneconnection.cc. You might want to download our mobile app so you have these teachings with you on the go. That way you'll never miss a message from Pastor Gary's studies, and you'll always have encouragement from God's Word at your fingertips. Find a link to download the app for your iPhone or Android device at our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. While you're there, feel free to take some time to learn about the church this radio ministry originates from, Cornerstone Chapel. We'd love to meet you. Please join us for worship and Bible study. You'll find all you need to know about service times and other info on our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. We hope and pray you've been blessed by today's teaching in the book of John. Please know that we're praying for you too. Although we're out of time for today, keep reading on your own in the book of John until Pastor Gary continues teaching through this extraordinary account of Jesus' life on Cornerstone Connection. No place to go But still you know